months. Uh, Samuel is still recovering, and um, he um, has asked me to tell you how much he misses uh, being here and being able to um, open up God's Word, so you're stuck with me again today. Um, the last couple of, of Sundays, we have looked at what the Bible uh, teaches about socialism. The first Sunday, uh, we looked at God's design uh, for caring for people who are in need. And we need to be very careful that when we're talking with people about how a society ought to be ordered and how people ought to be cared for who are in need, uh, we don't want to ever uh, come across uh, that uh, people um, uh, ought not be cared for. Uh, far from it. The Lord tells us in His Word, for example, in the book of James, chapter 1, and you can turn there with me, that true and undefiled religion is what? Well, it is this uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we see here um, a description that true religion, if it's genuine and real in God's sight, um, one of the things that will attend it is the care for those that are in need. And we need to be very careful to uh, explain, to maintain, and to practice that uh, if, if we really are believing the truth, uh, we will live the truth, and that will include, it's not the only thing, but it will include taking care of those who are in need around us. Well, that begs the question then, well, how is that to be done? And that really is uh, the, the heart of the whole issue. Uh, who is responsible? And you see people take a leap. Um, it's a leap of faith. It's an act of religion. Socialism is a religion. Marxism is a religion. Uh, it is a theory of how a society ought to be ordered. And so the question is not whether people in need ought to be cared for. The question is, who ought to be caring for those who are in need? And uh, we looked at a number of passages of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, we spent some time looking uh, at this command that if anyone does not provide for his own, especially his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse 
than an infidel. Um, that's pretty strong language. And so the Lord says that children and grandchildren uh, have a responsibility first. That's the first arena, or you can picture in your mind throwing a rock uh, into a, a perfectly still pond. A and when that rock hits, there are concentric rings that go out uh, from that uh, rock hitting. And the first ring uh, you can picture in your mind is that the family is supposed to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And of course, that's the very first thing Scripture teaches is that God created us, if we're able-bodied, uh, to do what we can to care for ourselves. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, even though we had the right to earn our living through the preaching of the gospel like the Lord Jesus instructed the disciples uh, when he originally sent them out, uh, he said, we did not make use of that right. Uh, but we wanted to show you by example the blessing, the joy, the responsibility, the duty before Almighty God to exercise dominion, uh, to uh, uh, work with our hands to provide for ourselves, our families, and then out of the uh, uh, extra that God blesses us with to minister to those around us, who are in need. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, you remember we were an example showing you this and taught you that if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Um, so here we have this uh, biblical teaching uh, that individual responsibility um, God says that is the um, first um, issue, and then the family takes care. Well, if the family can't or won't, uh, then whose responsibility is it? Then it is the church's responsibility. Our founding fathers, when they founded this country, they understood this basic framework of uh, how a society, how an economy uh, is supposed to function. And it, it's striking. There was not all of these civil government programs that were instituted. Uh, there was not a Department of Health, Education, and Human Services. didn't exist. And it wasn't because the Founding Fathers were indifferent uh, to people having need and those people being cared for. Uh, but they had this biblical view that it was not the role of civil government to be the Robin Hood, to steal from the rich and distribute to the poor. Um, well, uh, last, uh, you remember we looked at the uh, quote uh, from William Bradford's uh, of Plymouth uh, Plantation, 
and he uh, lamented how foolish and wicked they had been uh, to try to institute a communal uh, uh, view of ordering society. And he said, we were so foolish and wicked to think that we were wiser than God. And we neglected going to God's word and ordering the Plymouth colony according to what God says. And we thought that we could have this communal existence. Well, um, I mentioned... uh, a quote from Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was former prime minister of Great Britain, and she was known as the Iron Lady. And the reason for that was not because she was just mean and indifferent, but she was a very strong Deborah uh, that God uh, had raised up. Um, And here's what Margaret Thatcher said about socialism. She said, quote, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. That is a very insightful quote. How does socialism work? Well, it is this idea that the state, the civil government, is the ultimate owner of everything, and the one that is responsible for distributing or redistributing um, goods. And last Lord's Day morning, we looked at why socialism is sinful. And you remember those points. I'm not going to go over them in detail, uh, but just simply to state them again. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs not to the civil government, but to God Almighty. Secondly, that God is the one who has entrusted personal property to individual people. Thirdly, that because of man's fallen nature, Uh, It is foolish to think that man, apart from God and his uh, saving presence, uh, we can fix uh, the ills of this world. We need to begin with the heart of the matter, which is the heart being reconciled to the living God. And you remember we said that no economic system, including what is referred to as capitalism, can work apart from God's saving presence. Capitalism, devoid from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, ends up with people being trampled upon. But this idea of capitalism, we're going to talk a little bit more about it here uh, in in just a little bit. What we refer to as capitalism in our day and time really is really not capitalism. We are so far down the road of socialism in this country that there is really no free expression 
If you are a business owner, there are so many rules and regulations that if you do not follow them, that the bureaucrats in all of these government agencies have imposed, uh, it is mind-numbing. And you really come to realize who really owns your property. For example, this past December the 5th, we all paid our yearly rent. You think you own your property? Well, try not paying your yearly rent and see who ends up with your property. Um, we are so far down the road uh, of, of, in practice, already being a socialistic society, it is scary. God tells us that he has ordained uh, individual wealth. And then the fourth thing that we saw was God has appointed the means for gathering wealth and providing for sustenance. You remember the four basic uh, legitimate ways to acquire wealth. Work in a noble calling, gifts, Christian charity, thirdly, inheritance, and fourth, restitution from those found guilty by a civil court and ordered to pay to restore those we have personally harmed or, in the case of Zacchaeus, upon his conversion, he voluntarily repaid those that he had personally stolen from. That is biblical restitution. And those are the four basic ways that God ordains for us to gain wealth. Fifthly, God tells us what the civil government is supposed to do. And uh, that's where we'll begin uh, today. Um, we want to look at some passages of Scripture that are wrongly appealed to that on first glance might look like they are supporting the civil government owning everything or being in charge of property. Now, the reason I want to spend some time looking at this is um, the evangelical church in our day and time uh, is, is going down the wrong road. Um, we have supposed evangelical pastors who are embracing the diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, woke uh, agenda. And it really is a false gospel. It is a false atonement. Uh, it is denying what the Bible says about how we ought to interact uh, with one another. Over in Genesis chapter 47, we have the account of Joseph. And at the end of the events that unfolded, who owns all of the property, and all of the people in Egypt, with the exception of God's people. 
uh, God's people in the life of Joseph, they're the only people who remain free. But all of the rest of the land of Egypt are enslaved. And it is fascinating to me that evangelical pastors would appeal to a passage like this to say, here's a passage that teaches that socialism is good, that the civil government ought to view itself as the owner and the one in charge of distributing all goods. But uh, I've heard it, and so let's look at it and just see how absurd uh, that argument is. In Genesis 47, verse 13, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. And you remember God had revealed to Pharaoh uh, in these dreams that there were going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And uh, the Lord had revealed uh, to Joseph what these dreams meant. Joseph becomes next to Pharaoh himself, and Pharaoh appoints Joseph uh, in light of the advice that Joseph gives to store up all of the food during the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine hit, uh, uh, Egypt would not die of starvation. And it also became the very means by which God kept his people from dying. And Jacob and all of his sons and all of their little ones, their families, end up coming down to Egypt and being settled in the land of Goshen where Joseph provided for them. Uh, they were not enslaved until a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. After Joseph died, the Pharaoh who was in charge died, and a new administration comes into power uh, that didn't know Joseph. Uh, and they just disregarded uh, how God had spared uh, the very uh, existence of, of Egypt through the, the ministry of, of this man. And Pharaoh wickedly enslaved the people. But at this time, this was God's uh, gracious provision. But notice that the same person who provided for the care uh, of, of God's people in this amazing way also was used by God to bring judgment on the people who worshipped false gods. And it's fascinating that Joseph is a shadow of the Lord Jesus. Um, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Uh, they threatened to kill him. Uh, he is mistreated horribly, just like the Lord Jesus was betrayed by his own people. Uh, he was not just threatened with death, but he was put to death. But it was through that event of wicked persecution that deliverance comes. And that's a fascinating thing to think about, uh, that through the death of our Lord Jesus, we have redemption. And of course, death could not hold him. He has been exalted. And the Lord Jesus is saving his people, 
and bringing judgment upon those who do not obey the gospel, which will culminate on the great day when Jesus comes again. Well, Joseph was used to do both of those things as well, uh, to bring relief to God's people for those period uh, of years of famine and to bring judgment upon the people who were apart uh, from the Christ. And so verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh." And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them, and therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. And so at the end of the event, where are the Egyptians? Well, they're alive, that's true, but they're all slaves, perpetually. And they are in a situation where now not only are, are uh, they slaves, but their labors, they have to give 20% every year. 20% goes uh, to um, Pharaoh. So um, you can pursue 
socialism, where the state owns everything, but whoever does will end up what? A slave. Uh, not, not a paradigm for uh, uh, a free society. Dear friend of mine, uh, years ago served on a Christian board, um, the Banner of Truth Trust. Many of you are familiar with it. Publishes just all kinds of wonderful, uh, godly uh, books. And he would travel uh, over to Scotland and, and Europe uh, because this uh, board is not just in America, but also over in Europe. And I was talking with him one time, and he said, you know, Henry, it is just fascinating to me that our, our brothers and sisters over in Europe have this just an irresistible attraction to socialism. Uh, he said, I, I, for the life of me, can't, can't explain why they are just so attracted to socialism. And he said, I've thought about it, and he said, the only thing I can come up with, it has to be a defect in their DNA. <laughs> now, he was being funny, but... He, he said they have this still status mindset where, where they're just attracted to it even though it enslaves people. It always has. It always will. Another passage that we need to look at is 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Genesis 47 is no positive paradigm uh, for how the civil government ought to uh, uh, be viewed and, and function because it ends up with people who look to the king uh, as, as their savior. They end up in slavery. Same thing in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so there's a real problem here. And if you will take note, that is always the context in which socialism comes to be embraced. It is always in the context of a crisis. Sometimes it is a quote-unquote natural crisis, but many times it is in the context of a designed crisis where people say, how can we get the general populace to turn over their freedom and their authority to us voluntarily. And so uh, wicked men and women will create on purpose uh, scenarios uh, of, of health crises or economic crises 
uh, in a land where they can set the stage for people becoming desperate and say, oh, we need help. We need a solution. Well, the people in Samuel's day had a problem. They had these wicked judges who were perverting justice, who were taking bribes, and the people said, we need a solution. But tragically, they looked to the wrong place for their solution. And that's what happens when uh, countries turn to the false religion of socialism. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Now, does it say, And they said, Samuel, go and inquire of the Lord how we can have relief from this crisis. Nope. They looked where? Let's keep reading. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, that was a genuine problem. It was a genuine problem. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like who? All the nations. So where do they look for their solution? They look to the world. They say, we, we need a king just like all the other nations of the world have. They have kings that protect them and care for them and provide for them. That's what we need. We've, we've got these wicked rulers, your sons, who pervert justice. They're not doing what's right in God's sight. We need relief, and so we want you to appoint a king like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, the people already had a king. It was God Almighty. And for them to look to the world and the world's method of fixing things, uh, Samuel was, was distraught, and he went to the Lord, and he said, Lord, here's what the people are, are demanding. And the Lord said, okay, give, give them what they're asking for, but also tell them what they are actually in reality doing by looking to this false paradigm that the world is putting forth. They have rejected, not you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God said, tell them, okay, God will give you the king that you want, but warn them 
And so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. Now, if somebody were to come to you and say, listen, I got a deal for you. I will give you a tax rate of 10%. What would you think? You'd think, that sounds pretty good (laughs) compared to the tax rate. But here, who is it that is the owner of the tenth. It is God Almighty. And so right here you see the mindset of of socialism. Who really in reality uh, uh, do socialists believe they are? And they really in their heart of hearts view themselves. They may not call themselves God. But that's really what they have done. They have denied the God of the Bible and have placed themselves as the ultimate owner of everything in a society and the ultimate wise one who knows best how to allocate resources rather than God Almighty being the one. And that's what God is warning his people in Samuel's day, and it's true to our day. Uh, Verse 15, He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be what? his slaves. And that's why our forefathers did not set up our society as a socialistic society. That's why our forefathers, because even though many of them were not Christians, but they all, without exception, had embraced a Christian biblical worldview of how a society ought to be ordered how a civil government ought to function, what its role is. And it is not to view itself as the owner of everything and the one who allocates goods to whom it deems best. Verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Another passage of scripture over in the book of Acts. And we're running out of time as usual. Um, 
Acts chapter 12. Um, here we see the mindset of wicked kings. Um, and what a contrast. Keep your finger there, Acts 12. Go over to Romans chapter 13. Uh, here is what God says the civil magistrate ought to view itself as. And then we're going to contrast that with what we see this example in Acts chapter 12. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant, God's minister. The, the Greek word there is deacon. He's God's deacon. It's the same word that God uses uh, for the generic term servant, throughout the New Testament, and it's the exact same Greek term that is used for the office of deacon. Now, obviously, he's not saying that the civil magistrate is an officer of the church of the Lord Jesus, but it is striking that it is the same term. He is one of God's officers, not in the church, because the Bible teaches the separation of church and state as different institutions. They have different functions, different responsibilities. But both of these institutions ought to view themselves, and they are in actuality under the authority of God Almighty. Not just the church, but also the state. And this passage declares to us that the civil magistrate, whether they acknowledge it or not, have been placed there by God Almighty, and they ought to view themselves as God's servant. And what is the main job of the civil magistrate? It is to execute temporal justice. It is not to view itself as the owner of everything and the distributor and arbiter of goods and services. One of the horrors that took place in the old Soviet Union and is taking place in communist China and North Korea and Cuba and Venezuela even as we speak, is the civil government in a socialist, communist, Marxist society. They are the ones who view themselves as the owner of everything and in charge over everything, including what you will do in terms of work. Uh, they are the ones that decide Who's going to be a ditch digger? Who's going to be a farmer? Who's going to be a garbage collector? Who's going to be a lawyer? Who's going to be a nurse? 
It is the civil government in a socialistic society that ends up viewing itself and practicing this total control, total tyranny over uh, the people. But that is not the job that God has appointed. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 12 in closing. I can't believe we're out of time. And if we have opportunity the next time that we look at this, um, we'll try to look at Acts chapters 2 and 4 and 5. Okay? Uh, We won't have time to look at that today. But that'll be uh, what, what we look at next time. We'll close today by looking at Acts chapter 12. And here we see a civil magistrate um, who has lost sight of what his proper role is. And I want you to notice that as this civil magistrate views himself uh, as as God, uh, he is a source not of terror to those who do evil, but he is a source of terror to those who are doing good. Exactly the opposite. And that's what socialism always produces. That's why God's people must stand against this movement in our day and time to view the civil magistrate as the solution to the problems that we face in our society. Economically, socially, Um, Acts 12, verse 1, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And historically, without exception, those countries who embrace socialism end up doing this very thing because they understand when all comes down to the bottom line is anybody and especially Christians, confess Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And they will not tolerate competition. Well, down in verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Here we have this top-down control, this view that we're in charge, we own everything. And so, on verse 21, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Socialism basically views the state as God, as Messiah walking on the earth. And that is why it is a blasphemous false religion. Because it is not the Savior. It is not God. And this passage reminds us God is not pleased with individuals or groups of individuals that pretend they are him. Look, he, uh, the voice of a God, not of a man, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. 
And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And so tyrants, they are doomed. Now, <laughs> between the time that they are claiming to be God and acting like they own everything and the time that God brings them down, they can do a lot of damage temporally in time. And those who are under their tyrannical rules can suffer grievously. Um, God alone is the owner of everything. And he has assigned duties to the civil magistrate and it is not to view itself and act as if it were the owner of everything and the one who has the wisdom to redistribute wealth. Praise God for his word. May the Lord write it upon our hearts. And I hope these passages will be helpful uh, as you talk with friends and family and neighbors uh, because this false religion of socialism is growing and spreading like a cancer in our day. May God deliver us. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. Your word is sweet and precious. Oh Lord, uh, we did not have time uh, this morning to look at the book of Acts, chapter 2 and 4 and 5. Uh, Lord, we uh, see in those passages that the uh, giving of, of goods that was just uh, so uh, uh, prevalent in the early days of the New Testament church was not uh, to form a commune. Um, but it was a voluntary sharing of personal property. Uh, Lord God, uh, deliver us from the lies of Satan. We pray for our children and grandchildren that they would not be caught uh, in this false movement in our day and time to view the civil government uh, as the Messiah. Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior. Thank you for the Bible, your very word, and that you reveal to us the danger of looking to the civil government. You tell us in Psalm 146 not to put our trust in princes, but to put our trust in you, O Lamb of God. We love you. We love each other. We thank you for your word. Now bless, Lord, as we fellowship together, prepare our hearts for worship. In Jesus we pray, amen.